0: ridge kitty yeah have you ever seen the abyss
1: i'm there right now
0: i'm talking about the movie with ed harris
1: no never heard of it
0: what okay spoiler alert you're probably never gonna see this film but spoiler alert Ed Harris in the Abyss has to wear this special scuba suit so he can travel to the bottom of the ocean so he can defuse this nuclear bomb that's going to explode and kill off this friendly alien species.
1: Like Jar Jar Binks.
0: No, not. With the underwater. It is not not like Jar Jar Binks. (laughs) All right, here's the deal. Ed Harris in the Abyss is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for this show, actually, because we get to chat with folks who've reached the Ed Harris level of life. People... Who are super deep. Do you get it?
1: You're getting to a point. I can feel it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is this is the point that I want to get to. If you've been in the outdoor world in the outdoor community, chances are that you have lost someone, someone very close to you. And they can make you feel alone. It can make you feel angry. And I have personally experienced this. And this is also why we wanted to talk to my friend Janie Dial. She's got something very startling to say about grief and loss in our community. And it is Ed Harris, Level Deep.
2: I believe that conversations around mortality, grief, and loss should be commonplace, they should be celebrated. And they should not be taboo, especially in light of the fact that so many of us no longer believe in or base our lives around a particular religion.
0: It's heavy, I know. But at its heart, this is a show about ideas. What life is like before this idea, what happened to cause it, and what life is like now moving forward with it. Sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's risky or messy or powerful. Today, it's challenging. It can be scary to talk about death, uncomfortable. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. Healing takes courage. I'm Patty O'Connell.
1: And I'm Elizabeth Nakano.
0: Welcome to Safety Third, a show about ideas and how we come to believe in them.
2: How many interviews have you done for the podcast thus far? Like
0: 47. Really? It's true. We've done like 47.
2: I trust him yeah. as far as I can tell. Yeah, we're, already
0: on, we're on season eight.
2: No, I don't believe you.
0: That is pretty much how my friendship with Janie has been since day one. We met at Five Point Film Fest a couple years ago, and like all great friendships, ours began with poop jokes. Most of our chats start like that, and then somehow we seamlessly flow into serious and thoughtful conversation.
1: Janie is one of the founders of Wilder, an online marketplace for women. In addition to running the company, she's a yoga teacher, a designer, a horseback rider, and a rock climber.
0: Basically, Janie is a total badass. And she's not afraid to talk about difficult subjects, which is really good because... Today, we're going to have a candid conversation about death. It's an unfortunate part of life spent in the outdoors, but those painful moments in life are often accompanied by moments of lightness.
2: Well, things were going pretty good for me in Portland, Oregon. And then I met a man. Brad and I (laughs) met at Wanderlust which is a yoga festival in California. And we sat in this yurt on the side of a mountain, and of course slowly as time went on and the night wore on, people started to disappear and go back to bed. And he and I stayed up talking and we didn't stop talking until the sun came up. I think the first words when I called my mom and told her that I I met someone were, finally.
0: And that was in, like, the first couple weeks of you guys knowing one another. Day. The first day, you (laughs) said, finally. The first day.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And from there, it was just on, like, Donkey Kong. I think that's something that you would say. Uh, (laughs) I spent 19 days with him total, and I moved to Northern California. And started a whole new bohemian life.
0: (laughs) And so... Describe that relationship. What really stands out?
2: Have you seen Point Break?
0: Have I seen Point Break? Are you kidding? Yeah.
2: It felt it felt like I was living in Point Break.
0: You felt like you were living in Point <laughs> You felt like you were a, in a surf gang robbing banks or you were we chasing weren't robbing a surf banks.
2: gang. No, I was just living <laughs> a fast and furious bohemian life. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, man, they call him Bodhi, like Bodhisattva. Yeah, exactly. I love Point Break. Okay, so you felt like you were living within Point Break, which totally. I, I know that I totally understand that.
2: Yeah. So when I met Brad, there was this instant feeling of trust. I trusted him with my heart, and I trusted him with our conversations, and I trusted him to, to rise to you know the challenge of being in a relationship with me
1: at a year in Janie and Brad had their toughest month as a couple this was coming off their honeymoon phase their relationship like most wasn't perfect all the time
0: Janie and Brad were talking about marriage they were talking about kids they were talking about navigating life together but Really, what they were doing was expressing their individual goals, their individual expectations in this new companionship, in this partnership, but they were both trying to drive the bus. It took about four weeks to figure out how Brad could have one hand on the wheel and how Janie could as well, but they did it. They navigated it together. And as a way to celebrate getting out of that hard place, they decided to go climbing in Yosemite. It was Janie's first time there.
2: I'd heard so many things about Yosemite and I had these grand expectations, but they were they were met with satisfaction. And I'd never seen granite like that. I mean, I grew up in Utah and, you know, the, the Cottonwood Canyons have a lot of granite, but I'd never seen anything so beautiful and, and sparkly. It's, it's mesmerizing. And as we wove in and out of the forest, I, I felt like a kid. Yeah, I felt like a kid seeing a landscape for the first time. And yeah. then we got to the base of Cathedral Peak, which is what we climbed, which is only about five pitches, and it's pretty easy climbing. So we took our time, and he didn't even put climbing shoes on. He just threw on his shoes because he was so good. He was such an amazing climber, and had climbed all over the world and had done Half Dome uh, you know, half a dozen times, and he was just so proficient and skilled that I, I felt so safe with him when I got to the top of that climb, you know, Brad said, I mean, these words will always play on repeat in my head. He said, welcome to heaven. And it's because we were just really happy in that moment yeah. and, and on that day and on that climb and in our relationship because we had just slogged through some shit.
0: (laughs) This scene that Janie paints is so flippin' beautiful to me. And it makes what happened really, really hard to swallow. Brad had been training for the Evolution Traverse,
1: It's this eight-mile-long route across nine 13,000-foot peaks in the Sierras.
0: It is long. He felt like he needed to squeeze in some training after he and Janie finished their climb in Yosemite. The plan was that he'd climb the Mathis Crest and meet Janie back at camp for dinner. So it's not out of the ordinary that he'd want to train. Anybody would want to. The evolution is insane. So it makes a lot of sense, but nothing makes sense about what happened tell me about the last time you saw Brad.
2: Hmm. I've replayed that a million times, too. I wish that I could describe it as really poetic or something or, you know, this this phenomenal experience that I would write a song about or something, but it was very simple. It was taking care of the needs that we had, and that was it. Um, I took all the gear, you know. I had this big-ass heavy pack, and he was he was apologizing for how heavy it was and I was kind of joking with him and just flexed my muscles. I was like, please I can handle this, you know. <laughs> and he took an apple and a cliff bar and the water on his back in a tiny little camelback. And the one thing I do remember that stands out is he was skipping when he when he walked away from me, when he skipped away from me, I should say. (laughs) And I laughed at it and I laughed at him. And as he skipped down the trail, he turned around and he said, I love you. And I repeated it back to him and I just watched him disappear over the ridgeline. And I was, I was genuinely content. And um, he fell on that climb that he did and he never came back and he Mm -hmm. died instantly. And, That moment was the beginning, I guess, of the rest of my life.
0: When the park ranger told Janie what happened, her knees buckled and she fell to the ground. She actually wrote about that exact moment an article for TGR and I want to read a part of it that really stood out to me. Yeah. Um, So Janie wrote, I fell to my knees helplessly, hopelessly, weightlessly edging closer to the shoreline of a dark ocean that I knew was about to carry me away. In that moment a tear in the fabric of the blanket of reality opened and I entered into a parallel universe that pulled me outside of normalized rationality beyond faith and reason and into a new landscape of pain that dared me to find something to live for. Wow. Yeah, it's brutal. I mean, when when death abruptly rips someone from your life, it kind of it shatters everything around you and it rips you away from what you thought was solid ground. When when that has happened to me, I've always tried to grab onto memories, to anchor me in this whir of emotion. And, and it's not just the happy memories. I, I hold on to the hard ones, too. I think, I mean, loss sucks. I, you know, we've both experienced it. And um, I think it's looking back at those simple moments where it doesn't seem simple. But that's where yeah. the power, I think, comes from yeah in the, in the memories, you know, it's like he was skipping, and he turned and he said, "I love you." yeah and that's fucking beautiful.
2: yeah, and I pay it, I, I pay so much closer attention to things like that now, and and I'm grateful for that. yeah i I think that in my daily existence, there's this feeling that's like a blanket of impermanence. And <laughs> in those tiny, unsexy, really, really mundane moments, I think that's that's the best stuff of life. And I know that now. And I get that now. And it's it really is kind of a, a gift. I used to hate that word.
0: Why do you hate it?
2: Well, I hate it because it's not fair.
0: What's it's, not fair? Um,
2: that, that we have to lose in order to gain. Yeah. That we have to know sour to know sweet. That all of these things mm-hmm. are relative. And that the depth of pain that we experience is likely equal to the depth of joy that we're able to experience. And you can't know one without the other. It's it's mm-hmm. the double-edged sort of of life and so i guess i don't i don't hate it i've come to accept it as as what life means and that life really is suffering but that suffering is such a privilege and what i mean by that is it allows you to become so much more clear-minded and focused like diamond focused on what matters
1: We'll be right back after a short word from our sponsor.
0: Even before Brad's death, Janie was on what she describes as a path of spiritual evolution. In her 20s, Janie started to really dive into a yoga practice. She read Zen books and started to meditate for the first time in her life. Prior to that, she was kind of this confrontational atheist, which was all just this way to fight against the strictness of her Mormon upbringing.
1: And I don't think it's so unusual to want to explore things that are outside of what you grew up in.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, I grew up as a Catholic, and as a kid, I really never felt this spiritual connection to anything. Church always seemed like a chore, and it always painted this picture of an angry kind of Santa Claus God. Like, there was this existential naughty and nice list. It never made sense to me as a kid, and... As a teen, the same thing. Early 20s, the same thing. I didn't find like a true, real spiritual connection to something until my late 20s. And honestly, I am still and probably will always still be figuring that out.
1: For Janie, the community around yoga and meditation, it offered this comfortable, emotional and spiritual landscape. Like she felt like she had this firm foundation to stand on. But Brad's accident really changed that
2: what I learned really quickly was how important ceremony and ritual are. We gathered, not just once, but I think all, all total, there were seven ceremonies that we held. And the first one was as a group when we walked back up to Cathedral Peak as, as family and friends. And um, we all gathered there and screamed bloody murder and raged, And then when we returned back to Sebastopol in Northern California, we we all gathered at this really beautiful spot called Goat Rock, which was a, a climbing area on the coast. And everybody gave each other permission to stand up and say what they felt. And there was really truly, and I, I mean this, there was it's probably the only experience in my lifetime where I've felt that there was absolutely no judgment. And at one point, when the sun started going down, we all walked out to the coast and watched the sunset. And I asked everybody to give me permission to scream <laughs> and howl. And I know that sounds really weird um, when, I, when I say it now, but um, we all gathered around. And from the deepest, most guttural, primal place in me, I raged and screamed louder than I ever have in my life. And it felt mm-hmm. so thrilling and good to just have permission to feel that way. The next week we did a ceremony at a friend's house. And then the week after that, I, I went to Kauai where his family lives. And we did a paddle out in Honolulu Bay and we spread his ashes there. His friends took his ashes to the evolution traverse, which they did and, and took him to every single peak. And we also built a picnic bench. These are the, these are the things that I want for other people right. to take cues from. Um, not because it's the perfect way of doing things, but there's something so potent about gathering together as a community and giving each other a slip um, to say... You get to feel however you want about this because it's really fucked up. And we're not going to make any sense of this. I think that culturally, what we could do better is not pretend our way through pain.
0: I'm wondering with how deeply you were connected to Brad, did you get angry at him? Were you pissed?
2: (laughs) Of course. Yeah. Yeah, but that didn't last for very long because it's a useless emotion. <laughs> I absolutely raged, and rage has its place in the process, and it happened right in the beginning, but it evaporated really quickly when I realized that, one, misery loves company, yeah, and that there's a kind of mesmerizing power that, Feelings and thoughts like that can have and they become toxic. Yeah. And in some way, in some corner of my soul or my spirit or my existence, I knew that that was the wrong way.
0: So... Here, Janie was really dealing with a few difficult things. She has to come to terms with what happened to Brad and what's happening to her, but she also had to deflect judgment. When death in the outdoors occurs, what typically follows very quickly behind it are these opinions, loud ones, about risk versus reward.
2: I remember feeling very protective of Brad because he was soloing. I mean, I think the first question that I was able to ask the ranger after I found out what had transpired was, was he wearing his climbing shoes? Which might sound strange, but I think even then I... As a climber, I, I know how the outside world views these kind of risks as pointless or as tragic, you know, or right. as stupid um, in a really reductive way. Um, and I don't feel that way. I, I feel like it's our job as a human to reflect on and calculate on our own terms, what risks we deem worthy. And knowing that within yourself, I think makes you a more well-rounded human. I think it makes us more self-actualized humans if we're able to quantify and address and confront what's in front of us, even if death is on the line. And personally, I... uh, I went back in, and climbed Mathis on the one-year anniversary, and I soloed certain sections. I'm sorry, Mom, if you're hearing this for the first time, but I <laughs> did. And, and that was my choice, and it's my prerogative. And nobody yeah. gets to tell me what risks that I need to take or that I get to take or that I choose to take because I'm a, I'm a more well-rounded and self-aware person because of those risks, not in spite of them. But I also knew that it was absolutely necessary for my own personal health and progress to chart the territory um, so that I could know it and feel it and understand it on a really visceral and physical level.
0: There's this thing in the outdoor world that I hate when a death occurs, and I see it as this throne of hindsight. There's the conversation, right? It starts with, oh, this is such a terrible thing that has happened. That's the first reaction. And then somehow it shifts to, oh, well, they shouldn't have been there. And I just don't understand this at all. And I hate it. I hate it. And I know that it happens far, far too often in the skiing world, but Elizabeth, does it happen in the climbing world at all?
1: I, from what I've seen in my very small sphere of that world, uh, yes, unfortunately. But I think it also happens in everyday life too. Like I'm thinking about when I hear about cyclists who are hit and they're often criticized for riding in city traffic or someone on a motorcycle you know, that decision, if they are in an accident, comes with a lot of judgment from others.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. And that reaction is just plain bonkers to me. You know, I think I see it more though in the outdoor world and it's probably because I'm hyper focused on it because I'm connected to it. Right. We both are. So I'm probably just recognizing it more, but it is one of my biggest frustrations with our community. I mean, it makes me so angry because this hindsight, This judgment, it doesn't allow any room for empathy. And judgment lives where compassion does not. And it's all rooted in fear and anger. So to me, I know why Janie went back to Mathis Crest. She was shedding all of that and allowing room for compassion, room for joy and love, room for it to come back into her life.
2: I remember sitting in the dirt. I'd been carrying... A bag of his hair every day and I buried it. <laughs> I buried it in the place that he fell and wow, that was I think the culmination of all the ceremonies leading up to that one moment of my personal yeah. um, my personal mode of, of finding some kind of peace around it and even though I don't think that there will ever be a moment where I feel like I'm over it and if anybody ever tells you that That you need to get over whatever trauma you've you've been through kick them in the nuts or in the crotch um the lady (laughs) lady nuts kick them and kick them where it hurts um you know just kidding don't kick people that would be (laughs) totally inappropriate um no it's just not true you're you're never getting over it and that's okay and we have a culture that perpetuates getting over things and manning up and moving on and it's such horse shit yeah and there is a level of acceptance but it's only possible through a consistent conversation and whatever ceremony means to you i promise you there's there's something on the other side of that
0: So, you know, I've dealt with loss and in my own experience, this, in this journey through life, I've hit rock bottom myself and come out of it. And I know that you can recycle that rubble and build a foundation with it. You know, rock bottom can actually be the foundation upon which a new, more wonderful, home can actually be built?
2: I guess sometimes I am cautious around platitudes, around the kind of phoenix rising from the ashes kind of metaphors. And I, I think I'm cautious about that because pain doesn't always make you better. And having hit rock bottom doesn't necessarily mean that you're you're going to be gifted a more beautiful life. (laughs) I don't think that they correlate. I mean, it's a nice idea and I've definitely built, you know, a business, I've built new friendships, I've built deeper, stronger relationships. And in many ways, my life is is better, but I'm also deeply tormented (laughs) by these things. There's a level of acceptance that makes you certainly more resilient but also um, forces you to confront the reality of life, which is that pain is just part of this, and that rock bottom might happen a couple times, and hopefully it happens less and less as you age. But I guess I'm just really cautious of the idea that you'll get over it, that you'll become a better version of yourself, because I think ultimately we'll just become more resilient, will become more awake and aware and tender in the face of the loss that is still yet to come.
0: You've been listening to Safety Third, a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Janie Dial is our guest today. Learn more about what she does at Wilder.com. That's Wilder with a Y. If you like what you heard here, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Good ideas need champions. Safety Third is produced by Elizabeth Nakano. Mario Quintana edited this episode. Additional production help from Parker Cross. Music by my brother. Yes, my brother, Brennan O'Connell. He smells like old cabbage, but is incredibly artistically talented. Fitz Hall is our creative director. Becca Cajal is our executive producer. I'm your host, Patty O'Connell. Okie dokie dudes and dudettes. Until next time, pals. Keep it tight. Keep it loose. And remember, safety third.